Hello, friends. It has been a hot minute since I've released a new Drunk Discussions episode, but here I am with a brand new episode after I think, I think it's been two years since I released the last Drunk Discussions, but we'll get into that in a sec. This episode will be a different format from Drunk Discussions episodes of the past, and I'll get into that in just a minute as well. In the meantime, what will I be discussing today? I'll be talking about whether or not I think baseball players from the steroid era should be in the Hall of Fame. So, without further ado, let's get this shit started. Yes, friends, Drunk Discussions is back, and like I said off the top, the format will be a little different for this episode. Instead of reviewing something, as this show has typically done, I'm going to be discussing something which is of interest to me, and that is the Baseball Hall of Fame, and whether or not people from the steroid era, specifically someone like Barry Bonds, deserve to be in there. Spoiler alert, I think he does. With that being said, I am doing this podcast under the Drunk Discussions banner because why not? I haven't done a Drunk Discussions episode in like two years, and I'm still paying the hosting fees to Podbean to keep the old episodes up and running. And because baseball is something that I've wanted to do a podcast about for a long, long time, I thought, why not just do this one episode on Drunk Discussions instead of coming up with a whole new podcast for it, just in case I don't end up doing a baseball-themed podcast. Additionally, in the past, I know that Bud Light Lime has been the drink of choice on this podcast, mostly for the running joke of us trying to get sponsored by Bud Light Lime, or Bud Light in general, but that shit will not be drank here tonight. I am drinking a Blackfly Orange Vodka Cooler, and yeah, it's a fucking vodka cooler, I enjoy coolers fuck off to anyone that doesn't like that. <laughs> I, I get made fun of all the time by my friends for, for drinking coolers instead of, you know, hard alcohol, but fuck it. I enjoy coolers. It is what it is. Before I begin my discussion on the Hall of Fame, I do just want to say thank you to Brass Taps on Danforth. For anybody who's listened to this show in the past, you'll know that Brass Taps was the home of Drunk Discussions. Sean and I were going there frequently for drinking nights, and one day I just decided randomly to start recording a podcast from there. We never really asked anybody for permission. Well, we actually just never asked anybody for permission to record a podcast from the bar. We just did it. And thankfully, the staff at Brass Taps were cool enough to let us do it and not say anything. Hell, a few of the staff even joined us on the show on occasion. Sadly, in late 2020, Brass Taps announced that due to the COVID pandemic, they would be closing down permanently. I have a lot of great memories from Brass Taps, and this podcast never would have existed without them. I, like a lot of people in the community, am sad that Brass Taps is gone, and I will miss them greatly. With that out of the way, the Baseball Hall of Fame ballot results for 2021 were recently announced, and zero new inductees were elected into the Hall of Fame. It has been debated for a long time now, almost a decade if not longer, 
whether or not players like Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Roger Clemens, and others who are either known to have taken steroids, accused of having taken steroids, or suspected of having taken steroids, should be elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Some of the many reasons against them being elected to the Hall of Fame include arguments like they ruined the integrity of the game, and that they cheated, and cheaters shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Here's the thing though, baseball doesn't have the greatest history when it comes to integrity. There are cheaters who are already in the Hall of Fame, and technically nobody in the steroid era actually cheated. Now, having said that, before I do get into my thoughts on the Hall of Fame, a while back I did post a question on Twitter to my followers, asking people for their thoughts on whether or not steroid era players, specifically in this instance, Barry Bonds, should be in the Hall of Fame. The question I posed was, currently working on a podcast about why I think Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame. If anybody has thoughts either for or against that I can add in, feel free to comment. And thankfully I had some feedback. I had six people get back to me and give me their thoughts. And I greatly appreciate that. So before I give my thoughts, I'm going to read the tweets that they sent to me. So MC says he's for Barry Bonds being in, in the Hall of Fame. He was the best hitter to ever play the game. He was a Hall of Famer before he started doping. There are a lot of actual proven cheats in the Hall. If Selig is in, Bond should be too. As for being against, MC says he was a jerk. So nice, nice input at the end there, MC. <laughs> Barry, Barry was did come across as a jerk during his playing career. Another four is Chris. And Chris says... 500 home runs and stolen bases. Only player in MLB history that has both. Seven-time MVP and eight gold gloves. No need to mention either the single season or career home run record because those speak for themselves. So Chris is definitely for Barry Bonds being in the Hall of Fame. We also have another Chris, and I'll call him Chris W. Chris W. says he had the skills to make it into the Hall of Fame without cheating, and he cheated anyways. So reading into that, I'm going to say Chris W. is against Barry Bonds being in the Hall of Fame. Matt says, look at his pre-steroid years. They are pretty good. So I think, I think that's a should be in the Hall of Fame for Matt, and that's what I'm going to mark it down as. Mike says, he cheated, period. So that's another one against. And finally, another Chris, Chris B. Honestly, the fact is he had a Hall of Fame career well before the issues. He was unreal his entire career. You don't get to that number of home runs by just juicing. Ask Jose Canseco. And it's not like gaining a ton of muscle helps you play baseball. Most of them do it for recovery. So based on the feedback I got on Twitter, and again, I appreciate everyone who, who provided feedback. So it seems like of the six people that provided feedback, four of them are four Barry Bonds going into the Hall of Fame and two of them are against. Completely understand it, and everybody is entitled to their opinion. I respect the opinions of everyone that interacted with me on that question. Now, as far as how I feel about Barry Bonds being in the Hall of Fame, well, let's begin with a statement that I made just before I read the tweets. Technically, nobody in the steroid era actually cheated. Yes, using steroids was morally wrong, but at the time... Bonds, Clemens, Maguire, 
and everybody else who either admitted to using steroids or was accused of having used steroids, it wasn't cheating. There was no rule in place in baseball at the time which prohibited the use of steroids. Yes, you can look up the definition of cheat in a dictionary, and there will be multiple entries on what the word means and how it's used. But I think it's safe to say that when most people apply the term to the steroid era players, they mean cheat as in violating the rules. As there were no rules against steroids, we can safely say that these players did not violate any rules. If we look at cheat in terms of the definition which defines it as doing something dishonest or deceitfully, then yeah, there's an argument to be made there, and I'll get to that in a little while. In terms of violating the rules, again, there were no rules prohibiting steroids at the time. In a 2013 interview, Greg Jordan, then of SB Nation, did an interview with former baseball commissioner Faye Vincent. In the interview, Mr. Jordan asked former Commissioner Vincent about a memorandum he wrote in 1991 regarding the issue of steroids. This is the question that Mr. Jordan put forth to Mr. Vincent using a quote from the memorandum. The possession, sale, or use of any illegal drug or controlled substance by major league players and personnel is strictly prohibited. Those involved in the possession, sale, or use of any illegal drug or controlled substance are subject to discipline by the commissioner and risk permanent expulsion from the game. Your whole basis for the memorandum was the violation of federal law. You're a lawyer, and yet it was utterly ignored. Why? And had it been heeded, how would the sordid history of the past two decades be different? Mr. Vincent responded with, the letter was ignored because it didn't affect the players. They were thoroughly protected by collective bargaining, but I want to make a moral statement to them and legal one to everyone else. The union told them to ignore it. The only way a change could be made was through collective bargaining. The union argued that Teston violated players' civil liberties. The union had strong, bright lawyers who concocted a bulletproof legal argument. I knew the memo would be ignored, but even more surprising was that no one in the press covered it. It turned out to be right, though. Federal law, much later, would assert itself. The former commissioner would go on to say, I wanted to put pressure on the union to recognize I was correct. I failed. We tried and failed at the bargaining table, too. When I left baseball, there was no written policy on drug activity in baseball. It was pathetic. Inept. So there you have it. In the commissioner, in, in former Commissioner Vincent's own words, there was no written policy on drug activity in baseball. We can all argue about how we feel about the steroid era, but there was no rule in place preventing it from happening. Therefore, steroid players aren't cheaters in the sense of breaking any rules because there were no rules in place to be broken. Now, before I get into the issue of steroid era players being dishonest and deceitful with what they did, I do just want to stay on the topic of drugs and baseball a little bit longer. Let's take another look at the quote from former Commissioner Vincent's memo. The possession, sale, or use of any illegal drug or controlled substance by major league players and personnel is strictly prohibited. Use of illegal drugs in baseball has been going on for a long time. Whether it be marijuana, LSD, 
cocaine or other forms of, uh, of drug substances. I won't get into the use of marijuana, but I do want to take a look at more hardcore drug use in baseball, such as LSD and cocaine. Let's start off talking about LSD. Probably the most famous use of LSD in Major League Baseball is the no-hitter thrown by Doc Ellis on June 12th, 1970 against the San Diego Padres. Even though the no-hitter was thrown in 1970, the story of Doc throwing it while on LSD would not be made public until 1984. Although there are those who don't believe the story to be factual, Doc Ellis was a known drug abuser and would eventually enter rehab to get himself clean, which eventually led him to becoming a drug counselor after his playing career had ended. Even though some people don't believe Doc threw the no-hitter while on LSD, it is mentioned in a 2018 article on MLB.com written by Joe Poznanski. The article is about the worst no-hitters thrown in baseball history. In the article, Doc's no-hitter is ranked number 4, due to the high amount of walks and base runners allowed by Ellis during the no-hitter. Let me read the article to you now. It states, Doc Ellis, Pittsburgh Pirates versus San Diego Padres, June 12th, 1970. Final score, Pirates 2, Padres nothing. This is the famous or infamous LSD game. Ellis had dropped acid earlier in the day and still went out and no-hit San Diego. As Ellis' version of the story goes, he woke up in Los Angeles at noon. He was to start a 6 p.m. game in San Diego, the first in a twilight doubleheader, but he didn't know that. Ellis thought that he was pitching the next day, so it seemed a good time to take acid. A little while later, the girl he was with told him that no, actually he was pitching that evening. She somehow managed to get Ellis to the airport. He somehow flew to San Diego and somehow got to the ballpark. It is unclear, even to Ellis in the ensuing years, how any of that happened. Ellis would say that he was high and gone the entire game. He couldn't feel the baseball or even see the catcher. He remembered almost nothing from the game except for a few trippy things like, and this is a quote from Doc Ellis now, I started having a crazy idea in the fourth inning that Richard Nixon was the home plate umpire. End quote. Ellis couldn't throw strikes, but the Padres couldn't get a hit. The no-hitter was saved by second baseman Bill Mazarowski, who made a spectacular diving catch on a Ramon Webster line drive. The rest of it was a blur with lots of walks, and Ellis finished it off with a strikeout of Ed Spezio to clinch the LSD no-no. As for the no-hitter itself, Doc Ellis ended up walking eight batters while only striking out six. He also allowed three stolen bases and hit a batter. It seemed that his pitching was wild enough to make the story of him pitching under the influence of LSD to be believable. What fascinates me, though, is the fact that this feat seems to be widely celebrated. I don't often hear about people condoning Doc for pitching a game high on LSD. If we're harsh on steroid users for ruining the integrity of the game, why aren't we equally as hard on someone like Doc Ellis for putting player safety at risk? LSD is an hallucinogenic, and in the MLB.com article, again, Doc is even quoted as saying he started to think the home plate umpire was Richard Nixon. Doc could have seriously injured somebody that day, and that's not to mention the potential harm he put himself in. Granted, Doc is not in the Hall of Fame, but should we say his no-hitter counts less than a regular no-hitter, in the same vein that we discuss whether or not McGuire and Bond's single-season home run records should count? and Bond's overall career home run record? 
LSD is drug use, right? And drug use is bad. And players who accomplish great things while using drugs should have their achievements discredited, right? Switching over from LSD to cocaine. Cocaine use became a large and publicly known problem in baseball during the 1980s. Much like the steroid scandal of the late 1990s and early 2000s, the cocaine scandal would eventually lead to a trial which would make national headlines. Big name players of the era were summoned to testify about their use of cocaine and other drugs. Some of the players summoned to testify included Tim Raines, Dave Parker, and Keith Hernandez, among others. The spotlight on the cocaine use led to the revelation of other drug use in baseball which had been going on for decades, such as marijuana and greenies otherwise known as amphetamines. The trial for the cocaine use, known as the Pittsburgh Drug Trials, led to quite a few shocking revelations from the players who were called to testify. During the trials, former pirate John Milner talked about getting greenies from Hall of Fame players like Willie Mays and former pirate teammate Willie Stargell. Though Milner also stated that he never saw Mays take or distribute greenies, merely that they were available at his locker. Milner would go on to testify that he had bought 2 grams of cocaine worth $200 in the bathroom of the Pirates' home field, Three Rivers Stadium. Keith Hernandez revealed that he had used cocaine for three years and that he believed about 40% of players during the early 1980s had used cocaine, though he later retracted that statement as being grossly wrong. In a statement which became well known because of it being highlighted in the Ken Burns documentary Baseball, now Hall of Famer Tim Raines admitted that he kept a vial of cocaine in his back pocket during games, and that he slid into bases head first so that he would not break the vial while playing. The trials also revealed that drug dealers frequented the Pittsburgh Pirates clubhouse, and that even the Pirates mascot had bought cocaine and distributed it to players. Players who testified during the Pittsburgh drug trials were granted immunity from further legal consequences. However, they weren't immune from being punished by Major League Baseball. 11 players were suspended by Major League Baseball, but those suspensions were later reduced to fines and community service. The 11 players punished by MLB included Keith Hernandez, who would be a key part of the Mets World Series Championship just a year after the drug trials, Joaquin Andujar, a member of the 1982 World Series champion St. Louis Cardinals, Dale Barra, a member of the 1979 Pirates World Series team, Enos Cabell, Jeffrey Leonard, the 1987 NLCS MVP, Dave Parker, a member of the 1979 Pittsburgh World Series team and the 1989 Oakland Athletics World Series team, Lonnie Smith, three-time World Series champion with the Phillies, Cardinals, and Royals, Al Holland, Lee Lacey, a member of the 1979 Pirates Championship team, Larry Sorensen, and Quad L. Washington, 1974 World Series champion with the Oakland Athletics. Of the 11 players punished by Major League Baseball, six of them won World Series either during the height of the cocaine scandal or not long after the trials took place, with one other, Claudel Washington, having won the World Series in the early 1970s. So I can't say for certain if there was rampant cocaine use at that time or not. Probably was. In addition to the 11 players I've just mentioned, an additional 10 players were named or testified during the trials, but did not receive any form of punishment from MLB. These players include Dusty Baker, a member of the 1981 Dodgers championship team and future three-time NL manager of the year, Vida Blue, a member of the Athletics World Series three-peat teams of the early 70s, 
Gary Matthews, the 1983 NLCS MVP. Dickie Knowles, World Series champion with the 1980 Phillies. Tim Raines, member of the 1996 and 1998 Yankees World Series teams. Member of the 2005 White Sox World Series team as first base coach. And 2017 Baseball Hall of Fame inductee. Manny Sarmentio, 1976 Reds World Series team. Daryl Sconers, Rod Scurry, and Darrell Thomas, member of the 1981 Dodgers World Series team, and Alan Wiggins. In all, of the 21 players who were named or testified, 13 of them either won World Series before the trials or would go on to be on World Series championship teams after the trials. And one of the players is a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame, Tim Raines. And in my opinion, Dusty Baker will probably eventually be added to the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee for his managerial career. In my opinion, of the 20 players, not including Tim Raines, only three have Hall of Fame or borderline Hall of Fame credentials. Dave Parker, Keith Hernandez, and Vida Blue. Did the cocaine scandal keep these men out of the Hall of Fame? I can't say for certain, but there's a good chance that it did hurt their candidacy especially Hernandez and Parker. I think with Vida Blue, though, even though I personally think he had a case for the Hall of Fame, the voters just didn't think he was worthy enough. He fell off the ballot after just four years, garnering 5.3%, 8.7%, 3.1%, and 5.7%. With that being said, Vida was a three-time World Series champion, an AL Cy Young Award winner, and a six-time All-Star. He had 209 career wins, 143 career complete games, 2,175 career strikeouts, a 3.27 career ERA, and a 45.1 career war. Maybe not fully Hall of Fame worthy, but I think more deserving than just four years on the ballot. Again, I don't think the scandal hurt Vida's candidacy, I just don't think voters felt he was worthy of the Hall. He appeared on the ballots from 1992 until 1995. Parker and Hernandez, however, I feel were victims of the scandal. I say that because their eligibility came during the steroid scandal of the late 90s and early 2000s, and I personally think that the steroid scandal led voters to remember the cocaine scandals of the 80s, which led voters to be hesitant at voting them in. Dave Parker was an MVP, an all-star MVP, a two-time World Series champion, seven-time All-Star, three-time Gold Glover, and three-time Silver Slugger. For his career, Parker had 339 home runs, 1,493 RBI, 290 batting average, and a 40.1 career war. Now keep in mind, Parker, along with Hernandez, was Hall of Fame eligible before advanced stats really took off, and batting average, home runs, and RBI were key numbers voters looked at. Parker ended up being on the Hall of Fame ballot for the full 15 years of eligibility before they changed the max to 10 years from 1997 to 2011. The highest percentage Parker got was 24.5% in 1998, the season when Mark McGuire's single-season home run record brought attention to the use of steroids in baseball. After that, I personally believe, as more came to light about steroids in baseball, coupled with Parker being named during the 1980s cocaine scandal, it hurt Parker's Hall of Fame candidacy. I think if steroids hadn't become an issue, Parker's cocaine use probably would have been overlooked and he would be in the Hall of Fame today. 
Hernandez is more borderline than Parker, in my opinion, but I still think that he would have squeaked in on his final year of eligibility if it weren't for the steroid scandal going on at the time. Hernandez ended up falling off the ballot after only nine years of eligibility, from 1996 to 2004. Like Parker, Hernandez was a two-time World Series champion. He was also an MVP, a five-time All-Star, two-time Silver Slugger winner, and 11-time Gold Glove winner. He hit 162 career home runs, had 1,071 RBI, and a 296 batting average. And his career war was 60.3. Both Hernandez and Parker had over 2,000 career hits, 2,182 for Hernandez, and 2,712 for Parker. As I've already stated, I think that the cocaine scandal would have been overlooked, and Parker and Hernandez would both be in the Hall of Fame if the steroid scandal of the 90s hadn't been brought forward. Now, I bring up the cocaine scandal not just as a way of pointing out that players have used drugs in the past, both harmful and performance enhancing, but to include the argument that players who've used drugs or cheated in the past have been punished by not being elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Having said that, as previously mentioned, again, I believe Hernandez and Parker would have been elected despite the cocaine scandal had it not been for the steroid scandal breaking out during their periods of eligibility. Players like Willie Mays and Willie Stargell may not have used drugs such as greenies and red juice, which I'm not going to get into here, but those substances were available in their lockers for other players. And if we're judging entry into the Hall of Fame based on morals, which some people these days are, I think it shows a lack of morals from these men to not intervene in preventing other players from using drugs and, at the very least, making sure they weren't made available in their own lockers. Granted, Willie Mays was elected into the Hall of Fame in 1979 before the cocaine and drug scandals became public knowledge, but Stargell was elected in 1988 on his first ballot after the cocaine and drug scandal had been made public. With that being said, I think both men do deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, just like I think Bonds and Clemens belong in there as well. As far as not putting steroid-era guys in the Hall of Fame because they were cheaters in the sense of they were deceitful or dishonest, well, there are owners who are in the Hall of Fame who were deceitful and dishonest and took part in baseball's collusion scandal, which I won't get into on this episode, perhaps a future episode if anybody listening to this would like me to do that. But I guess my argument would be, why are we mad at the players for not being open and honest when the media and sports writers help them to cover it up? Again, going back to Ken Burns' baseball documentary, there's a part in the 10th inning where writer Thomas Boswell states, There was another player, now in the Hall of Fame, who stood with me and mixed something. And I said, what's that? And he said, a Jose Canseco milkshake. And that year, that Hall of Famer hit more home runs than he ever hit any other year. I don't remember if Mr. Boswell mentioned the year this took place, but I guess it would have been the late 80s to early 90s, as I believe he did say Canseco was still on the A's at the time. I could be wrong about that, though. Regardless of the exact year this conversation took place, it would have happened less than a decade removed from the cocaine scandal. So drugs were still used by players, the media knew about it, and everybody kept quiet. In 1998, when news first broke of McGuire potentially using a performance-enhancing substance, baseball, the media, and the public all tried to sweep it under the rug. In fact, 
Steve Wilstein, who had wrote the initial article about the Androstenedione, which he had seen in McGuire's locker, was vilified. People on all sides attacked Steve. I remember listening to sports radio call-in shows at the time, and the public overwhelmingly didn't care about McGuire's potentially using performance-enhancing drugs. Even a lot of the hosts of these call-in shows didn't care. People wanted to see home runs, especially in the middle of McGuire and Sosa chasing down Roger Maris's single-season home run record of 61 at the time, which they both eventually broke that year. Heck, in recent years, MLB themselves have been accused of juicing baseballs so that more home runs get hit during the season. Evidently, the bottom line is people are willing to look the other way on certain things if looking the other way means seeing a show and being entertained. There was more that I wanted to bring up on this podcast, but I've already gone on longer than I intended to. I'm at about 41 minutes and 30 seconds of recording time, and I'm going to try to edit that down to about 30 to 35 minutes. Good luck me. But with that being said, I'm going to start wrapping things up. Before I go, though, I do want to add to the argument I made earlier about Hall of Fame voters not electing players to the Hall of Fame who were involved in the cocaine scandal. I said that I believe Keith Hernandez and Dave Parker would have been voted into the Hall of Fame regardless of the cocaine scandal had their eligibility not occurred during the years of this steroid scandal. I do want to play devil's advocate on that, and on the flip side, point out that the Baseball Writers Association of America had a chance to elect Pete Rose to the Hall of Fame and chose not to due to his gambling scandal. It may come as a surprise to a lot of people, I know it came as a surprise to me when I was looking it up, but Pete Rose actually appeared on the Hall of Fame ballot for three years after his gambling scandal came to light. Rose's gambling issues became public knowledge in early 1989, and by late August of that year, he had received a lifetime ban from baseball. However, he still appeared on the Hall of Fame ballots in 1992, 1993, and 1994, before officially being taken off and listed as ineligible for the Hall of Fame in 1995. In those three years, Rose received 9.5%, 3.3%, and 4.2% of the votes. Voters had a chance to elect Rose to the Hall of Fame and didn't because of what he did. On the flip side of that, though, the argument can be made that Rose did break the rules of gambling, which have been in place in Major League Baseball since the 1920s, after the Black Sox scandal of 1919. With everything I've presented and talked about during this podcast, I will conclude by saying this. Players like Bonds, Clemens, and McGuire should be in the Hall of Fame. They did not cheat as there were no rules in place at the time preventing them from taking the substances they took or allegedly took. The Hall of Fame has known cheaters in there already. Players like Whitey Ford and Gaylord Perry, who routinely doctored the balls when they pitched to give them an advantage over hitters. Journalists and the media knew players were using performance-enhancing substances and willfully ignored it until a light was shone on the issue and they were forced to write and talk about it. It is widely believed that Bonds started taking PEDs and HGH after the 1998 season when Maguire and Sosa broke the single-season home run record. I personally believe that's probably around the same time Roger Clemens started to juice as well. 
both Bonds and Clemens were Hall of Famers before 1998. And I think that they should still both be elected into Cooperstown, regardless of what happened post-1998. Why should players from that era be punished when most people decided to turn a blind eye to what was going on at the time? With all that being said, for anybody who has taken the time to listen to this podcast, I sincerely thank you, even if your views on this matter are different from mine. I will leave you now with a 10-minute clip taken from the bonus features of Ken Burns' Baseball, the 10th Inning. In this clip, broadcasters and writers give their thoughts on Barry Bonds. The statements you're about to hear are from the following people. Writer Tom Verducci, sports historian John Thorne, broadcaster John Miller, writer Roger Angel, writer Thomas Boswell, writer Howard Bryant, writer Marcos Breton, Broadcaster Keith Olbermann. Editor of ESPN the Magazine and the Players' Tribune, Gary Honig. Howard Bryant again. John Miller again. Marco Spreton again. Writer Daniel Ockrent. And writer Gerald Early. So, I will let you listen to what these men have to say about Barry Bonds. Without giving my input, I just want it out there and you can make your own judgments for yourself as to whether or not you believe Barry Bonds and other people such as Roger Clemens and Mark McGuire belong in the Hall of Fame. Well, I remember when Bonds first came up and he was hitting leadoff for the Pirates and this guy could run like the wind, could play defense, steal bases, hit for power. You thought, this guy could hit 15, 20 home runs, which was pretty good back in the day, especially for a leadoff hitter. No one ever looked at Barry Bonds and said, there's a future home run champion. It just didn't happen. Stolen base champion, maybe. Batting champion, maybe. But no one saw him as a future home run king of baseball. Some people think that if you want to criticize a hitter, you call him a guest hitter. You say he's just one step away from the minor leagues. He's having a lucky season. But the very best hitters are the best guest hitters. And they get better as they get older until their reflexes slow because the guests have become more educated. Williams confessed he was a guest hitter. He was thinking with the pitcher and he was working the count. So he would have a different approach at two and one or two and oh or three and one. And he would look for pitches in zones. And if the pitch wasn't there, he wouldn't swing at it. That's what Bonds has done. He has mastered the strike zone in precisely the same way that Williams did. And he has been the consummate guest hitter. I have seen Bonds rip an ins a high inside pitch into the right field stands that no other hitter in the history of baseball could have kept in fair territory if he didn't know that particular pitch was coming. Barry had a, a, a singular ability to block out everything and focus on the task at hand. There's rarely been a player who had the, the depth of knowledge of the game that Barry Bonds had, who could see the things that were going on out there that could give him an edge uh, the way Barry did. And yet he was very protective of it. He wouldn't talk about that. He would laugh when I said to him, says, Dusty says you're able to do this and I said, oh, well, I can. I said, Tony Gwynn said that he believed that you can recognize a pitch right out of the pitcher's hand, that you know if it's going to be a fastball or a slider, the moment he releases the ball. And Barry laughed as, oh, that's ridiculous. I can't do that. I said, well, but he said you went through a whole four-game series and you never were fooled by a pitch. And Barry said, well, I can see if the pitcher's in a different arm slot. You know, his fastball's up here and his slider's down here. 
And I said that to pitchers and hitters, and they said, that's ridiculous. Nobody can see that. It happens just like this. You can't see it. Well, Barry can see it. He'd narrowed, narrowed the strike zone down to a little area where he was going to swing, and he had absolute, absolute control over it. His swing was, was, was just from here to here, just, just from here to there. Uh, sim simplicity itself. And over and over again, he, he would not swing at a pitch that was a quarter of an inch outside. I place him very high on the list of all-time players. And I put him in the all-time great, great with Mays and Ruth. He's got to be the, the third player there. Uh, there's no doubt at all. And the steroids will never take that away from me. When we encounter a poet or a musician or an artist of any kind who seems to be extremely odd, who cuts off his ear, who goes insane, who behaves way outside the parameters of society, we say, well, that's, that's typical of the breed. And yet some of baseball's most dominant genius talents fall into that same category. Ty Cobb, a sociopath by almost any definition. Babe Ruth, a glutton at the same time he was joyous. Pete Rose, an obsessive, a cheat, a denier, and yet joyous, somebody we just love to follow. And Barry Bonds, who was already close to being the best player in the game, but as his father was dying and had about three different potentially fatal diseases, Barry Bonds could not see other players like McGuire and Sosa pass him. He had to be the best before his father died. When Barry Bonds hit 73, you said to yourself, this is the culmination of something being terribly wrong in this game. You were totally desensitized to it. You were desensitized to the home runs. You were wondering how a player who had never hit more than 49 home runs had hit 73. It just, it became cartoonish. And I think that that's why you didn't see the type of pageantry that you saw in 1998. There was a naive Tata 98 that didn't exist by 2001. When McGuire broke it, I thought, okay, maybe when I'm an old man, I'll get to see it again. And that's three years later. I mean, we hadn't, we barely caught a breath. Bonds was just not a popular guy. He wasn't then. He isn't now. I don't think he ever will be. And people who really like Barry Bonds blame the media for that. And I'm a member of the media. I'll take my share of the blame for a little bit of that. But I didn't tell him to act the way he did. So um, I think he kind of made his own bed. And so that sort of moment is supposed to be celebratory and there's supposed to be a, a connection to the, to the athlete. And there really was one. And I would argue that even for the biggest Bonds apologists, that it was more of excitement, but not love, you know, respect, but not reverence. So it didn't have that magic. Statistically in baseball, it's very clear. A hitter peaks at 28. Throw in all the hitters there have ever been in Major League Baseball. Throw them into a computer, and you find that the variance here is maybe some of them peak at 28 and no months, and some of them peak at 28 and six months. They do not suddenly get better at age 35. They do not suddenly develop power at age 37. They do not hit more home runs by a ratio of nearly three to one um, in their 37th year than they did in their, in their 27th year. It just doesn't happen. If you believe deeply in something, uh, if you believe in the Wizard of Oz, and you're staring at the Wizard of Oz, and somebody goes over and deliberately, not accidentally, pulls that curtain back, grabs you by the shoulders and says, look at this. Are you going to be happy? Are you going to be thrilled with that person? I don't think so. 
I think Bonds was really sticking it to everybody. It basically said, this is a joke, something we have been ignoring, we now have to look at. We can't ignore it. And that's what he did. He stuck his finger in the eye of baseball fans and said, grow up, will you? Look at this, for, for God's sakes. And they, they, they can't but hate him for that. They, in, in particular in the media, because we look the other way for so long. We build those myths as well as tear them down. And when he says, what are you guys, crazy? Look at this. He's making us look like fools. Well, that's Barry's issue with the whole thing, is that why, why are you focusing on me when this was a league-wide epidemic? And if it was a league-wide epidemic and everybody was doing it, I'm still better than the rest of them, so leave me alone. That's his attitude. I know that in San Francisco, the fans were, were pretty much willing to give him the benefit of the doubt uh, because he made it fun to go to a Giants game. People in San Francisco got criticized because they cheered for Barry Bonds as if somehow that offended people in other cities. Uh, the, the nature of baseball, baseball's place in our society is for fun. It only exists because it's fun. It's fun to play. It's fun to go to a game. It's fun to listen to a game on the radio, watch it on TV. If it's not fun, it doesn't exist. He stonewalled on the question of steroids for so long because he knew and he understood the American craving for excellence and for stardom and for celebrity. He knew the home fans in San Francisco were going to cheer him no matter what. He knew that the home fans at AT&T Park, while they were, were talking about reasonable people who would be able to see right and wrong in other facets of their lives in this one, just close their eyes, okay? Because they want to see the show. And he understood that even the fans on the road who booed him mercilessly, if he hit a home run, they'd cheer for him. You know, I wish, you know, looking back on it, that if Barry Bonds had brought himself up to 754 home runs and then held a press conference and saying that he respects the game and he respects Henry Aaron and he recognizes that people doubt the, the value of what he has done, that he would think it proper to, at that moment, retire. It would have changed our view of Barry Bonds, that one simple act uh, of his saying, I've gone as far as I need to go, goodbye. They were all, all these sanctimonious articles were coming out saying, oh, if only for the good of the game, Bonds should quit. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking to myself, why should he be thinking about the good of the game? The owners aren't, the union isn't. And at that point, probably, since it had become an open secret about the steroids, he might have thought the only way I, I might get any kind of payoff off out of this is to get the home run record, you know, because it, it means that they can't dismiss me. Uh, I think that might have been one reason why he decided to stay around, other than, you know, his enormous ego. It puts baseball in a real quandary. Uh, I, think purpose, I think to some degree, purposely, he wanted to do that and put baseball in a quandary. And with that, I will conclude by saying, once again, I appreciate everybody who took the time to listen to this. I have my opinions. Sports journalists, sports writers have their opinions, and you out there listening have your opinions. Having said that, if you have listened to this podcast, whether you're listening to this in the morning, the afternoon, the evening, whatever time of day it is, where you are, when you're listening to this, I appreciate you listening, I thank you for listening, and maybe I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.